Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon, and uh, it's my uh, great honor to have Monica Heltz with me. She's the public health director for the city of Fishers. And Monica, we've talked before, but by Zoom. We are now at the Ignite Space in downtown Fishers at the Hamilton East Public Library, very near your office. And uh, it's nice to see you in person, socially distanced, and we masked up until we started talking. It's nice to see you too, Larry. (laughs) We can actually look at each other as we're talking. Um, Obviously, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about COVID. Uh, We are currently in the city of Fishers in what's called level four, severe, red, all those things. It's the highest risk level for COVID community risk. However, if we look at the numbers, and I'm a big fan of your weekly video updates, and you always spell this out. It would appear that we as a community, and, and we're not the only one, but several have, have started to improve our numbers in recent weeks. So explain why we are still in that highest red category. Yeah, um, that's a really good question and one that I hope I'm able to address um, on the weekly updates as well. Um, so our risk categories, um, if for those of you who may have been watching for a while, um, were developed before the state had, had provided any metrics for local communities. Um, so we developed those uh, with the criteria as laid out by a number of different organizations, including the CDC and um, the Harvard Global Health Institute and a number of other entities that had set some benchmarks that we hoped um, that we wouldn't have to meet, honestly, (laughs) when it came to the rise in cases. Um, We have exceeded level level four or red category since October. Now, at this point, it's been quite some time that we've been in this category because our rates have been so very high. Um, So we are now getting to the point where we are able to say that both of our major metrics are actually in our orange category, which is fantastic news. However, when we set up this metric system and when we um, implemented it way back in July um, and discussed it with our health board, um, the decision was made to, in order to avoid bouncing back and forth, um, we would give these updates and make this these determinations once a week, and we would need to be in a new level for two weeks before we actually change the level so that we know that there's some level of consistency and that it's not going to be bouncing back and forth every week since there are other restrictions and recommendations tied to each of those levels. So we are currently in red. I hope that we will be able to move to orange soon since both of our major metrics are currently in orange. Just explain briefly, and I know it's you can get in the weeds on this, but just for the, the, the rank-and-file public, uh, what you look for. I mean, uh, for instance, there's one metric that is the number of positive cases based on the tests that you do here in Fishers. There are other levels uh, of data you're looking at. Just briefly explain the major numbers you're looking at and what they really mean. Yeah, so the primary numbers that we're looking at are pretty consistent across um, across the country as far as the major metrics that different entities are using, including the state. Um, the first one is the percent positivity rate. A lot of people have heard about that. So that's of the tests that are performed, what are the percentage that are coming back positive? Um, so that tells us whether we have enough testing going on, um, whether um, the support, whether the public health infrastructure is in place, how prevalent the spread is, just based on the numbers of people coming in to get tested and how many of them are are coming back positive. So that can tell us 
one half of a puzzle. Um, and then the other thing that we look at is the case incidence rate. And those are the, the numbers of people per our population who are testing positive. So we usually count that in public health with all diseases. We usually count it per 100,000 of the population. Fishers conveniently has a population very close to 100,000. So it makes it pretty easy to to know that that our sheer number of cases is pretty close to our case incidence rate. Um, but, but both of those things tell us important details. They both tell us different things. Um, so those are the primary metrics that we look at and um, in determining what, what level of risk we're at from a community perspective. You already mentioned that uh, the numbers have been improving over recent mm-hmm. weeks. Now, if you go on social media or if you talk to people, everybody has an opinion about mm-hmm. why. Some say, well, the post-holiday surge has come down. Others say, well, we're doing a better job of distancing, masking people, finally taking it seriously. Other people say, well, you know, we're vaccinating the medical staff. We're now in the process of vaccinating the residents of nursing homes. Um, So as the educated professional, as best you can make an educated guess, why do you think the numbers are going down? Uh, So that's a great question and one that you'll hear debates on the national stage from very um, well-known public health experts trying to figure out the answer to that question. So I am not going to pretend that I have that answer. Um, But, you know, there are certainly a lot of theories. Um, We do know that there are not enough people vaccinated yet for this to be the explanation. Um, So it is not because we have achieved some kind of herd immunity level on vaccinations that we we know that that's not the case. Whether it's a combination of um, the number of people who have already been infected, um, which is a much larger percentage um, than those who have been vaccinated, you know, combined with the numbers who have been vaccinated, that's a possibility. We know that there are a lot more people out there who have been infected who may have natural immunity um, who who haven't necessarily been reported. Most places estimate estimate that um, for every known case of COVID that we have, we may have three to five times that number of unknown cases. So that's also a possibility. Well, let me tell you, I had it and. In- I knew it. (laughs) I had some pretty bad symptoms. I I was fortunate I did not have to go to the hospital. And I still can't figure out how I got it. My my wife, the most honest person I know, I asked her, what have I done wrong? She said, I can't figure it out. You mask, you distance, you do all the things, you wash your hands. So uh, it came to me somehow. So Mm -hmm. what I'm hearing you say is that as someone who's had COVID, it was a uh, I think at one point an idea that you had 90 days of antibodies. Now there, I've heard other things. What's the what is the current view of uh, health professionals? Yeah, so we're still using the 90 day mark because we know that in some cases people's antibodies can wane before. 90 before the 90 day mark it's unusual but the vast majority of people are still showing antibodies in that 90 day range we're still doing studies and learning more and more about how long those antibodies last but because there's variability from individual to individual like we have to set some kind of benchmark in order to to go forward as a population with trying to give guidance on you know how long someone is reasonably safe um, we can't we can't we don't have the infrastructure in place to test every person every week to find out if their antibodies have gone exactly. yet. Exactly. <laughs> but what I'm hearing you say is that uh, a lot of people have had COVID, maybe raised symptomatic, had very mild symptoms, don't mm-hmm. even know they had it, and they have these antibodies in them. Perhaps that's one reason. And again, you're, you're clear. Nobody really knows why. <laughs> you're doing the best you can to look at possibilities, yeah. and that may be one possibility. 
that may be one possibility. You may also have different subsects of the population who may be more careful or less careful. You know, so it, it's hard to know. We know that a lot of people have really been strict about hunkering down this this entire year and, um, you know, have really done everything possible to not be exposed. And, you know, other groups have taken a few more risks um, as well. Um, and we really haven't seen those studies coming out on how that behavior difference has resulted in more or less um, infections in those different groups. Um, and then you have people getting closer to the vaccine. So they may say, well, maybe I was taking more risk before, but I'm really close to the vaccine. I think I'm done taking risks. <laughs> I think there are a lot of things at play. And, and I think that's what most experts would tell you as well, that, um, that it's, it's likely not one single cause. I looked at the dashboard that you put out on your website, which is very good. And uh, the data is very, very interesting on that uh, dashboard you put together. But what I found just looking at it a couple of hours before we record this on March 1st in the middle of the day is is that there's uh, most of the positive cases of late that have measured by the city of Fishers in your department are really clumped in the ages 10 through 60. Over 60 didn't seem to, those age groups uh, looking at increments of 10 years really didn't seem, seem to be as high. Is there any reason for that? So we know that the older age groups um, had higher case rates early on because um, COVID hit uh, many of our nursing facilities very, very hard. So um, not so much um, older individuals who are living in independent communities, but we did see the case rates rise with the rest of the population. Um, so when we were seeing those big increases in November and December and January, we saw commiserate increase in um, in the older age groups as well. Um, one thing to keep in mind as you're looking at that data is Fishers is a very young population. We have half as many people over the age of 65 as the state average. So that's another factor at play there. I'm more in a minority than I thought. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, one thing I do understand very clearly, and I've been covering, I've been, I'm a volunteer blogger. I've been doing this and these, these podcasts about five years and, and following Fishers for close to nine so I've covered the school board, city council, other things. And and I do fully understand school boards make their own decisions about how they conduct classes in person, virtual, hybrid, whatever it may be. But you are your job is to advise mm-hmm. uh, the local school board and school officials. So and the reason I ask this question, I know you've you've done this on a regular basis advising the Hamilton Southeastern School Board, but there are some new guidelines that have come out from the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, I know you and your staff have looked at that. What what did you learn from, from that information? There are a couple of different sets of guidelines, so I want to be specific about which ones we're referring to. One set would be the quarantine guidelines, and the other set would be the school reopening guidelines. Well, I was really looking at the school reopening guidelines okay. because that, that's the one that came out most recently. You mm-hmm. can comment on the other, too, if you sure. like. Sure. Yeah, so the school reopening guidelines, I know that across the country, a lot of schools still had, have not been in person at all. So we are somewhat unique um, in the Midwest in that, you know, we have so many schools open. Um, a lot of other um, folks have played it a little bit more cautiously as far as putting the kids back in school. Um, so the CDC put out that new guide, guidance, which is a little more streamlined and succinct than the previous guidance that they had uh, provided last summer um, when we were initially looking at that. That that document was quite lengthy, and, and many of those steps were very difficult for the schools to um, to perform. But what we continue to emphasize with the schools um, is 
is the effect of the layering of the strategies and that there's not one right answer. Um, it's it's a question of basically each layer that you can put on of safety is going to mitigate your risk and decrease the risk of spreading in the schools. And we found that the layering um, that we that Hamilton Southeastern and other schools in the area has already put in place has really helped mitigate the spread. And we're not seeing um, high cases in the schools. You know, the mask wearing, the consistent mask wearing is a big part of that. Um, they've got sanitation protocols. They're trying to keep everybody spaced as much as possible. The hybrid setup that they had had for quite some time um, facilitated that as well. Um, but really, we've shown that this, the in-person schools can be safe. And some of the studies coming out from CDC, I think, are backing that up. And that was another reason, I think, for them putting out that guidance is to let people know that it can be safely done um, with appropriate mitigation strategies. So all of the strat- none of those strategies were new. Um, those were all things that have already been followed and that we've already been discussing with HSE this whole time and the other schools in the area. And they've been all successfully used. We just this it's pretty big news that today, March first, is the first day for Marion County uh, to have changed its public health order, loosened up some of its restrictions. Uh, you have a public health order in place here in Fishers. Uh, where does that stand, and where do you think? As uh, how will you be advising the mayor and the city council moving forward on that? Sure. Um, So our public health orders are primarily tied to the governor's orders, um, and they expire a week after um, the governor's orders. So um, ours expire on the 8th, um, and we will be looking towards a renewal in some fashion of the public health orders that are currently in place. Um, Ours have typically been just a tad more strict um, than what the the governor's orders are, and they've never been as strict as Marion County's. So I don't know that anyone will see any dramatic differences and any kind of new orders that we we would be putting out. Um, but we are under that review currently um, and would hope to issue those by the end of this week if we choose to renew them. And you have been using the Moderna vaccine. You know, I, I'm just thinking you've been dealing with so much difficult news ever since you stood up this health department dealing with COVID. As you said, since October, things have been very, very bad and as the numbers have just begun to turn around, but it must feel very good to go to that mass vaccination site and see the attitude of people as they get their first or second dose of the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. Working at the vaccine site, which I've done a few a few days because it's it's so fun, and be, just being there in general is a little bit like Disney World for for public health workers. <laughs> um, I mean, this is where we want to be. This is you know if. If, if I could do that 100% of the time, that's what I would be doing because it's a happy place. People are ecstatic to get the vaccine. We're ecstatic to be able to give it. Um, and uh, it it is good to be doing something that, you know, doesn't frustrate people for one <laughs> and, and that you know is offering needed protection for our community and is the, the major necessary step to get things back to any semblance of normal. You know, I, I think a lot of us follow this day to day, and as a journalist, I'm probably as guilty of this as anyone. But every now and then, you just need to take a few steps back and think about the fact that in the past, uh, in American medicine and world medicine, if we had a, an outbreak like this, it took, I'm thinking, six to eight years 
to be able to put some kind of vaccine together. There were, I mean, I don't pretend to understand it. You would, you had to hatch eggs, develop. I mean, it just took a long time uh, to do the work needed to provide a vaccine, test it, and put it out on the market. It was just a little more than a year ago where China, and I'm, I'm not, China has a lot to answer for, but they also did one thing that I think helped everyone in the world. They, they uh, published the genetic code of, of this virus. And when that happened, with all the technology we have today, and this is what amazes me as a non-professional reading other professionals, and that's the best I can do, is that how quickly it was almost a matter of these drug companies and the, and the other health departments uh, throughout the world and, and our own health, public health people, basically took that genetic code, fed it into a computer system, and began to come up with formulations of a vaccine. Uh, to me, that's just amazing that we are just a little more than a year into this this pandemic, and we are we have vaccinations going on. I take just talk a minute about how amazing that is as someone who is a health professional. I mean, it's it's incredible. You know, when you think about how much time it takes to develop different vaccines. I mean, there are diseases that we still don't have vaccines for, like tuberculosis. I mean, there's a an ineffective vaccine that's given, you know, in other countries. You know, so to to be able to see this new virus and come up with a vaccine in a year is astounding. And they're using a number of different technologies to do it, you know, and those technologies have been around longer. Um, so so just to couple that with, with saying, okay, we have this new thing, we need to use this other technology, and let's try all of these different things. And we already have um, two vaccines widely available here in the United States with a third one shipping right now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's it's just incredible. And you are using the Moderna vaccine at the mass vaccination site on 116th Street near Brook School Road at the Correct. old Marsh, uh, abandoned Marsh grocery store. Mm-hmm. I was there for the opening. It's I know that building had been abandoned for a long time. I'm mm-hmm. sure the city crews had a big job, and that place looked wonderful when I walked in there. I'm sure it still does. Mm-hmm. But the reason I bring up the Moderna, and I've been told by you know, from what I've read, all of the vac, all of the um, um, all of the doses, all of the different uh, vaccination comp- that are, uh, vaccinations that are available, be it Moderna, Pfizer, or the new Johnson and Johnson, all are very effective. They, Absolutely, it, it's there are small differences, but basically it keeps you out of the hospital. That's the bottom Absolutely. line. But uh, I understand the county health department at the request of the state is moving from the Moderna to the Pfizer vaccine. As far as you know, will you remain uh, users of Moderna? As far as we know, um, we're remaining with Moderna. We haven't heard otherwise from the state, um, but the state makes decisions um, kind of on a daily basis um, to change around different allocations. And uh, my understanding is that there have been some increased um, shipments of, of Pfizer, so they're looking to shift different places over to Pfizer, which will then free up some of the Moderna for other agencies. So, you know, they they shift the vaccine around a fair bit. They did that with the, some of the hospitals um, once the health departments came online. So we we kind of expect these changes and we go with the flow and and uh, we just want to get these vaccines in arms, whichever ones we have available. <laughs> well, well put there. Now, do, I know this is a tough question and I'm just going to ask you to tell me what you know, because I'm sure other people listening to this are going to ask this. Have you been given any indication from the state, which does, as you just mentioned, does take care of all this, any indication uh, when, because I've I've heard the mayor talk about uh, your facility is built up to the point where you could do with 1,600 to 2,000 
vaccinations a day. Mm-hmm. You're currently doing, a, I think last report I got was 1,000 a week simply because of the availability of the vaccine. Have you been given any indication uh, by the state? Because I'm seeing national reports that there's that there there's a lot more vaccine coming. Have you been given any indication when you can ramp it up? So um, we haven't been given any clear go-ahead as far as being able to ramp it up. We frankly haven't been given the vaccine to do that. But with Johnson & Johnson coming online, um, that's a possibility that we may receive some of that. And that would allow us to increase um, our appointments available um, that are available to Uh, you know, folks. And um, the state continues to have increases in their allocations from week to week. So the more they increase, you know, then the higher chance that we'll uh, someday be closer to our capacity. Um, You know, our goal, like I said, is just to put as many shots into folks' arms as we can. Um, And we're happy to do that as soon as we receive the vaccine and we're prepared and ready to do it. Um, but there are a lot of factors at play. And I know that the state's focus right now seems to be getting it into multiple different facilities. So we have seen you know, the Myers, the Kroger's, the Walmarts um, to, to be able to offer the vaccine now, too. Um, so as we get vaccine into more places, you know, we'll, we'll look towards seeing what the mass vaccination sites can do. So once the vaccine's there, you're ready. That's what you're saying. We're ready. Yep. And the state is very aware that we are ready. (laughs) You made no secret of that. Uh, You have been providing uh, weekly updates. I mentioned this earlier on your city's, on the city's YouTube channel and some other platforms, but probably the best way to get it is if you're on YouTube, just uh, subscribe to the city's channel. You get a lot of different products. One of them would be your your weekly uh, updates, uh, but you, uh, I understand, are going to share the wealth a little bit on this. Uh, so tell me the changes coming there. Yeah, we have a fabulous epidemiologist on staff by the name of Joshua Robinson. So um, I am going to be having him take over the the weekly updates as far as the metric reviews go, um, because he's primarily the person who is analyzing all that data and updating the dashboard. So um, I will take over a different day um, and give kind of more of a topic update um, as I was doing on many of the days over the summer before we switched to the weekly format. So I will not be far away. I will keep doing updates. Um, but um, but we thought it was a good opportunity to introduce our amazing epidemiologist. So, well, excuse me. I have uh, been talking mostly about COVID for most of this, uh, this time, and you can understand why. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the public about COVID before we move on to something else? Well, we do still want to keep using our mitigation steps, the same ones that we've been hearing about forever, the wash your hands, distance, sanitize, you know, stay six feet away. Just use use caution in your um, interactions and your decision making because it is still a very deadly disease for those um, who are unfortunate to contract it and be highly symptomatic. And we do still have, you know, people who are getting quite sick and being hospitalized and dying from this disease. So it is not um, not a small thing to trifle with, even though the numbers are going down. There is still some risk involved. Yeah, and I, as somebody who had it, I, mm-hmm. I had no fun with this. It was not <laughs> pleasant. I didn't have to go to the hospital, and I'm fortunate in my age range that I survived that. Mm-hmm. So uh, my message is yours. Don't do anything that will put yourself at risk. I want to ask about the health department in general, because when Mayor Fadness, I remember the, the news conference where he announced that he was going to set up a, a health department, which was 
something that no city had done for a very long time. So it's almost like reinventing the wheel. There was no template for the mayor or you or anyone else involved in the startup. And and the reason he gave uh, early on was that he did not see anything on the quick horizon as far as any kind of testing program that he thought the city needed. Uh, And he ramped that up as quickly as he could. It's still there, by the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's free to to anyone who wants it uh, within about, you can get an appointment right now within a day or two. You get the uh, results in a day or two. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, that's still available free to residents and for a small fee to businesses who want to test their own employees. So that was the reason it was done. Uh, and, And I just cannot imagine what the, what it must have been like when you were there to cre- help create that department. So talk a little bit about how you went about doing that, how you talked with the mayor about how you started setting it up, hiring the staff, and, and I'm going to talk more about all the other things that a health department must do. But just talk about those early days. Yeah, well, in full disclosure, I came about two weeks after the health department was set up or three weeks after. Um, So I wasn't there at the very, very beginning. Um, But uh, it's it's certainly a lot of work. And you're right, there's no playbook. There's nobody to ask. Um, Nobody in public health has set up a health department anytime recently. Um, I even tried to look for national examples of anybody who had recently set one up. Um, They're few and far between. I found one in Pennsylvania that had been considering it before the um, before the the COVID outbreak started um, and then, and then they put it on hold for a little bit. Um, So it definitely is an unusual thing and it is not a small undertaking. And I can tell you, I did not do it by myself. Um, And uh, it really took a collaborative effort from the whole city. So what you see here is an amazing, incredible um, city infrastructure with a will to get things done and, um, and the ability to, you know, put, thoughts and words into action um, in with incredible speed. So um, so I've been amazed from day one at how quickly and how efficiently the, the different entities in the city have worked together. So we had a, a team of a, almost every, I think, department in the city was working on some aspect of the creation of the health department in order to facilitate this. So we have our customer service team who's been running our hotline. I believe you interviewed Molly Connolly um, uh, a week or two ago. Um, it was a great interview. And, you know, our fire department has offered a lot of support and infrastructure. Our building um, inspector and building services has offered a lot of support and infrastructure um, to the program. Public Works, of course, has had a, a part, in, uh, several parts in the creation of the health department as well. And then, of course, we've brought on some staff who have more specific knowledge, like an epidemiologist, a health educator, um, public health nurse. Um, so it's it's been a collaborative effort and it absolutely has not been done alone. <laughs> so how large is your staff just in the health department itself right now? Um, well, it's a little bit hard to answer because we do have people who are working on a couple of different projects. So um, we have uh, one and a half public health nurses. We have an epidemiologist, a health educator. We have a vital records registrar. Um, so birth and death certificates is another aspect of the health department. Um, and then uh, in our um, environmental health services, we have a pool inspector, or water inspector, kind of handles all things water. We have uh um, a food inspector, a part-time food inspector, and then two other part-time food inspectors who also do the fire inspections. Um, and um, and then we still do the septics and wells and, um, well, that's and vectors. A, and Which is my next question. <laughs> I, I wanted to talk about this because you, you really start, you really dived right into that. Uh, 
even though COVID was the impetus originally for the mayor to create the health department, there's so that long list of responsibilities that you took over for the county health department who would handle it here yeah. and still handles it for the rest of the county. And, uh, you know, things like swimming pool inspections, mm-hmm. which I didn't know the health department yeah. dealt with. <laughs> uh, you had the private wells. You often inspect those. Uh, you have uh, food safety f- permits that are tied to that. I mean, I looked at the list. It's just a really interesting list. And so that kind of ties into standing this department up because it was you and the other people involved in, in starting the department that had to make sure you had people to take all those responsibilities mm-hmm. on. Must not have been an easy task. Yeah. So, I mean, the first the first step was to go through the state code and figure out what are we required to do as a health department and make sure that we're able to stand up those activities. Um, so that was last year's plan. Basically, what do we have to do? <laughs> um, this year, we're looking at what do we need to do? What are the things that, um, that we really ought to be doing, even if they aren't necessarily required under the state's code? And then Hopefully next year we'll get to the what do we want to do, which is um, which is really looking at where can we take this and how many other things can we offer our residents, you know, besides what the bare minimums are. Um, frankly, most of the health departments in Indiana aren't even offer aren't even able to provide the the what do we have to do services the the required services under the state code, um, and that's pretty unfortunate. Where you know some of the um, smallest amount of funding in the country is going to Indiana Public Health. We're in the bottom five um, every year, um, and so you see that you know we're we're all all of the health departments across the state are working on pretty skeleton staff um, that are far below the staffing levels that most health departments across the country are able to operate with. Now we at the city of Fishers, you know, have a, a lot of. Um, because we're integrated into the city, we have a lot of opportunity for being able to kind of. Um, expand our services while overlapping with some of the other departments. So it it provides an interesting integrated model that I think some other health departments may be able to utilize or learn from. That's our hope. Um, but, uh, but it is kind of interesting to look at what is actually the status of public health and what is what is the benchmark. The IU School of Public Health produced a report this year, uh, or the end of last year, sorry, on the status of public health in um, in Indiana and um, provided that to the State Department of Health. And it's it's not great, you know, as far as what um, what health departments are able to do and, and what their capacity is. Um, the IUPUI folks um, also produced some recommendations. They actually highlighted the Fisher's Health Department, which is unusual considering that we're in our first year of life. <laughs> Um, but as a, as a way to integrate those services and better leverage um, those possibilities, given the fact that, you know, the funding is is primarily local and it, it has been, you know, Indiana Public Health has been fairly underfunded, um, if, if you will. <laughs> so you're trying to do the best you can with the money available. That's what I'm hearing you say. I think that's what most public health providers would say that they're doing. And when you consider that we're not in the bottom five for outcomes, then... <laughs> Well, you know, I, I want to <laughs> say we're doing better than could be expected. But um, but here at Fishers, I think it, it's a little it's it's even something different than that. And what we can provide, I think, is an, is hopefully an, a new model or, or a potential alternative model. And I do want to w- mention one thing. I, I would get this question a lot roughly a year ago or less 
is that uh, people and fishers are not paying for both the county and the city health department. The taxes that you paid for the county health department have now been funneled into the city health department. So you're not being double taxed. You're paying for your own city health department. You're not paying for both in your taxes. So just wanted to clarify that. I've had that question so many times. That is very correct. Yeah. (laughs) So I studied up on that that to make sure I knew what I was talking about. It's been a fascinating discussion. We've touched a lot of issues. Uh, We're about out of time. I'd just like you to give you an opportunity to say anything you'd like to say before we wrap this up. Well, I want to mention that I highlighted the different staff uh, on kind of what we might consider the regular health department activities, but um, but I didn't touch on the many staff that we have working the vaccination clinic, the testing site, and our contact tracers who have been with us for quite some time and who many of you may have spoken to on the phone. So, um, you know, those are obviously temporary positions, and we, we hope to not need them very soon, but we're very happy to have them with us now. <laughs> Monica Heltz is the public health director for the city of Fishers. He's been on the job for less than a year, and I think uh, from what we can hear, you've accomplished quite a bit in less than a year's time. So we want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to talk to me. Thanks, Larry. It's been a pretty amazing year. 